Lord, as we come to your word, we thank you that you are a good and gracious king. And Lord, I praise you that you are supreme over all. Lord, as we look at this wondrous passage in chapter 7 and into chapter 8, I pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear of the glories of Christ. And Lord, I pray for the youngest to the oldest that God, your spirit would reveal to them the truth of who you are. Lord, I pray that you would work in a powerful way. And Lord, I pray that you would give me the words to say and in my weakness, be my strength. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you got your Bible this morning, if you'd open up to Hebrews chapter seven, Hebrews chapter seven. This morning, we're gonna conclude off of what we were looking at last time. We're gonna be looking at a far superior priesthood. We're going to finish chapter 7. We're going to jump into chapter 8. And I was thinking about when we think about something that is superior, we have to have a comparison. We have to have a comparison to recognize something as superior. I remember being in seminary. I was uh, about 25, 24, and uh, my dad was leading a trip to Israel and uh, my mom was going to go with him. And about two days, three days before, something happened with my mom. And I got a call and they said, hey, do you want to go to Israel? And uh, I was like, sure, let's go to Israel. And uh, it was two days away. I had a final exam. If you know me at all, uh, things seem to happen in a certain pattern in my life. And uh, I was, I had, a, had to be at PDX, Portland International at about at about 10.45, I had an exam at 9, and uh, I left school. People were amazed. They were like, you're going to Israel, aren't you? And I'm like, yeah, I got to leave in an hour and 45 minutes. They're like, you got to take this test. I was like, I know. And I was like, I haven't packed yet. It was amazing. And <laughs> I left school. I left school, and I had one of my buddies. I was like, man, please just be there. Come on. And I went in the house, and I was grabbing clothes, and I got out of there, and I, I, I made it through this is back before, you know, 9-11, so I made it through without really any problems through security, and I barely got there. I flew all the way to JFK from Portland, and I got into JFK, and you wait almost all the way till midnight. I was worn out. I had gone all day. I got to JFK probably at about 4 or 5 o'clock. We had seven more hours before we left to Tel Aviv. And I got everything ready, and I, was, I got on the plane, and I had the worst situation when I got on the plane. If you're above 6'3", you know what I'm talking about. You get on a plane, and I thought I had an, uh, an aisle. And I got on the plane, and it wasn't just that I didn't have an aisle. I was between two guys at least as big as I was. And I sat down, and I was panicking. I had about 12 hours to get to Tel Aviv. And I was like, there is no way I can sit here. I have no room. These guys are big. Their arms were over, like, you know, over the, the, uh, the side little armrest. And I was panicked, and, and I looked at a, a flight attendant, and, I, and I, I motioned to her, and I went up to her, and I said, look, you got to help me out. I said, there's no way I can do this for 12 hours. And she looked at me, and my, my dad, because he was 6'7", he understood, and, and he, was, uh, he had points because he had, was a 2 million miler with Delta, so he was in the front, and I was, uh, I was thinking, man, he's got it made. Well, the lady said, there's another option. And immediately, I was like, give me another option. 
And she said, we could bump you up to business. Well, this wasn't business first class. This was business El Al, which was the middle compartment of the plane. And then there was first in front of it. And for not that much, it wasn't bad at all. It happened. It was unbelievable. And then I'm sitting there thinking, there's no way this is going to happen. I'm sitting back there, you know, and I'm sitting between two guys that are, I'm thinking, awful. And all of a sudden, she does the unthinkable. She looks at me and says, come on. And I get up and I start walking up. We walk into this new place in the plane and it was glorious. There was like, it was like the whole front section up here, these first three rows on each side. There was no one there, nobody. And she said, you're right here. And I said, you gotta be kidding me. She says, you're right here. It was amazing. I had the whole row. I slept the whole way. I did not want to land. I was sleeping so good. It was great. They fed me. I had room. It was far superior to any seat that I possibly could have had or that I did have. And to this day, if you ask me about that trip, that is usually the first thing I will remember to tell someone about the nature of that trip to Israel. I mean, let me tell you about the seat I had, but let me tell you the upgrade I had in a seat that was far, far superior. You see, when we look at the book of Hebrews, I pray that as we go through this letter, you cannot talk to others about the book of Hebrews without talking about the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in order to demonstrate the superiority of Christ, it is absolutely a necessity that he compares it to that of the old. That he compares the way of the new to that of the old. If we don't see this, we will not, it will diminish the glory of who Christ is. The comparison is a necessity if we're understanding this truth. Last time we were together, we saw some different ways that the priesthood of Christ far outweighed the priesthood of Aaron. We made it through three. I wanna briefly mention those because we got a ways to go this morning. And what we looked at, we looked at the fact that it's superior in its power. Look at verse 15 of chapter seven. Verse 15 and verse 16, let's start in verse 16. Who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but look what he says, but by the power of an indestructible life. When we compare the priesthoods, there's a priesthood of Aaron that we learn about in the Mosaic law. But as we get to the New Testament, we learn about these obscure passages in Genesis 14 and Psalm 110, and we learn about the Melchizedekian line, the priesthood, the king priesthood. And we learn that Jesus is far greater than any earthly priest. And one of the reasons he's far greater because of his power. And it shows us here that because he has the power of an indestructible life, it is contrasted to verse 18. Look at verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of what? It's weakness and it's uselessness, which is contrasted to what? The power 
of the indestructible life of Jesus. So it's superior in its power. But second of all, last time, we saw another way that the priesthood of Christ far outweighed the priesthood of Aaron. The second way, it's superior in its promise. There's a promise that this entire priesthood is built on. And I pray this elevates your view of the scripture. I pray that it elevates it because we see that, that a thousand years after Genesis 14, we see that there's a promise that is given in the psalm. And it's given in what we read here in verse 21. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. There's a superior promise. There's a promise in the Old Testament that you can take to the bank. And we learn in the New Testament that all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. That when you see any hopeful promise that's relating to our salvation, relating to grace that we'll receive, relating to mercy, the answer, the fulfillment will always be in Jesus Christ. It's superior in its power. It's superior in its promise. The last thing we saw was, and I told you this is about the only time you'll ever hear me alliterate, so enjoy it. It's superior in its permanence. Nine times he mentions it over and over and over. And he mentions the fact in verse 24, but he holds his priesthood permanently. Permanently. Because he continues forever. If you're going to rely on one to save you, they better be indestructible. If you're going to rely on someone to save you, they better be more powerful than humanity that we know of. They better be something completely different. And Jesus is the God-man, and his priesthood lasts forever. So now we go into the fourth one this morning. We see that his priesthood is superior in its purity. Look at verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Now notice the descriptions of the purity of our high priest. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. I want to take each one as we walk through his purity, and I want us to see how it contrasts with all of us. And then I want us to see that if we have contrast with his character, how in the world can a representative of us be capable of closing the gap that we have with the holy God because of our sin? You see, the first word is holy. The word means unpolluted with wickedness. It's truly the idea of set apart. It's righteous. But unlike Christ, who is holy, we are sinful. We're sinful. We need his priesthood. Keep moving with me. The next one is the word innocent. The word innocent speaks of harmless, void of evil, blameless, Man, you can relate to times in your life that you got busted. We are not just innocent and we're guilty because of our heart condition. This is what theologians would, would, would call the depravity of man. 
for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I remember an unfortunate story in college where I, one of my roommates is uh, John Crosby and uh, some other guys. We should have been studying, but we weren't. And we were prank calling, regret, regretfully. And, uh, and we were prank calling, and we got busted, which was even more regretful. We were prank calling people in the dorm, and somehow the dean of men in Woodley Ewing dorm realized it. And I'll never forget it. He came to the room. It was like 2 in the morning, and he, oh, and he knocked on the door, and I opened the door, and there he was, and I knew we were busted. And immediately he said, why are you doing this? And my roommate said, we're, we're, we're not guilty. He said, we're not guilty. And immediately, I, I just completely threw him under the bus. I said, come on, Crosby, we're guilty. <laughs> I just called him out right there. And immediately, we were looking at each other, and it was clear that we had guilt. But sometimes, we have to understand, apart from the revelation of the Lord in our life, we self-justify. There's times in your life you know you've been guilty. Maybe you're doing 82 and a 55, and the cop pulls you over. Maybe when you pass that little sign that blinks on Broad Street, I don't know what it is, but I'm tempted to speed up every time I see it. And I go through it, and it says 48 and a 44, you know? And immediately, I'm like, guilty, guilty, guilty. But here's the problem. Here's the subtlety. Here's the danger, Outside of those times where there's blinking lights, where there's obvious guilt, apart from the revelation of the Spirit in your heart and in your life, you will self-justify and think that you're not that bad. The problem is, is we self-justify, but Christ is innocent. We are not innocent. We are guilty. The next word is unstained. This word, it, it means to, it's, it's without defilement. It's unstained, unsoiled. Uh, I, yesterday, I was writing on a whiteboard a lot. And at one point, I just was clumsy, and the marker came off a little bit and hit my shirt. And immediately, now I've got a stain on one of my favorite T-shirts. And I guarantee it's probably not coming off. It's one of these really heavy-duty markers. And it's stained now, but I want you to see something. How can those who are not holy, not innocent, not unstained, how can they represent you before a holy God and bring you access? That's his point. He's saying, look, look at the priesthood of Aaron. Look at the priesthood of Christ. He's holy. He's innocent. He's unstained. He's separated from sinners. And aren't you thankful that the one whose impeccable character stood out to the point where he would literally be separated from sinners, aren't you thankful that he came to this earth willingly to die in our place? Because you could read that if you didn't know the story of the gospel and you could think, oh no, he's separated from us, therefore he will not come to us. But aren't you thankful for the good grace and mercy of our Lord? He's separated from sinners. And then it says, the really the, the slam dunk. I want to read you some verses before that, though. 1 Peter 1.19. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. He's the only one that fit the, 
the, you know, it's like Cinderella's slipper. When you look at the, the qualifications of the suffering servant of God in Isaiah 53, only one fits the slipper. And Israel couldn't fit it because even, even Isaiah, the prophet, what did he say? Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips, but not Jesus. Not Jesus. There was no deceit in his mouth. You see, you keep going, and this is a passage we always read to you about the gospel, but notice what it says about his sinlessness. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Um, Look how he's referred to in the book of Acts in one of the sermons, but you denied the holy and righteous one. And, and, and I love this. This is, this is so amazing because it points to the nature of Christ. In John 8, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. Now notice this next phrase. Wow. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He's unique. He stands apart. If we can't meet those qualifications and we see that we far We fall far from them. There's no possibility for one that's a human representative of our race apart from Jesus Christ to bridge the gap, to give us access to God. And then he really hits the final one and exalted above the heavens. We're gonna see more about this, but it speaks about his death, resurrection, ascension, glorification over and over what Jesus has done. We are weak. You see, Hebrews 7.28 points this out. Contrasted with the purity of Christ, notice what it says here. What's the opposite of purity? Well, it's the one, it's the verse here that describes it. For the law appoints men in their what? Weakness. In their weakness. Men in their weakness cannot hold the standard of one who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. That's his point. This priesthood is far greater, much far greater. But then we see superior in its perfection. As we close chapter 7 in verse 27, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And then verse 28, for the law appoints Men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which come later than the law appoints the son who has been made perfect forever. What does that mean? Made perfect. Perfect. Made perfect. A lot of people struggle with this. Like it, it doesn't mean what you think it does. A lot of people think that, wait a minute, was Christ not perfect before he met the goal? Well, no, that's, that's no, not at all. He was completely perfect. But what it's speaking of here is the word perfect means to meet a goal. There was an intended goal for the ministry set before Christ, and he fulfilled it perfectly. He met the goal. Why? Because he was perfect. He was the son of God. I, you know, we, we had a, uh, an amazing camp. Uh, just, again, great students and leaders. And uh, we got there on Thursday and we, we drove a long time. You know, we got there Thursday night. Friday, the kids went down the Green River. 
We all survived. I was in the van, so I definitely survived. Kids did great. We, we got through. And then on Saturday, we had a great activity planned for the kids. You see, we, there's so many cool trails at Ridgecrest. And, and, and when we went up there, me and um, my buddy Scott, we, we looked and we thought, you know, there's so many cool hiking options. So we like, we got to let the kids hike. And we were asking them, like, look, you know, when you plan a hike, you've got all different types of levels of kids that are in shape. And so you want something that's easy and quick and it's about a mile. And we found the perfect hike. Well, we got there and... Uh, Thursday went by, Friday, and then Saturday morning, I grabbed the worship guy that was there that Scott had brought with him, and I said, man, help me out. We got to make sure we got everything ready to go. So we went up there, we looked, and we found the parking lot we needed to drive to from the chapel, and everything was great. Well, the kids met up at 1 o'clock. Hey, I'll be done by 2 o'clock. You got from 2 to 5 free. It's going to be awesome. Well, we get to the trailhead. And we start, and immediately I'm noticing, like, everybody's out of breath. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm just out of shape. I'm getting old. And, uh, but everybody's out of breath. And, and the longer we went, it just seemed like we started losing some. <laughs> we started having some trouble. And so at that point, I was thinking, you know, they just didn't. They deceived me a little bit because this is hard. I'm going to get on them. This is a little harder than they said. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to go down and get the van and drive up to the top. And when I get up there, I will rescue the ones that make it to the top because the ones that get to the top that are falling out, I don't think they're coming back down. I'm going to drive them down. Well, I go to the top, and as I get near the top, I get a call from Cully. And he goes, where do we go? And I said, what do you mean, where do you go? He goes, I'm looking at a sign. And it says, to the summit, look out. 3.6 miles. And I'm like, wait a minute. And I was thinking, where, where did you go? What, do you, what did you miss? And so I get up there. I said, Cully, I said, I'm going to hang up. You count to 10. I want you to yell as loud as you can yell. And I hang up. And I, I go 1,000, 1,000, 2,000, 1,000, 3,000, 1,000, 4,000, 5,000, 6,000, 7,000, 8,000, 9,000, 10,000. I'm like, where are they, Alaska? <laughs> There's no one there. Well, then I'm like, what in the world is going on? So I don't know what's happening. No one's coming, though, because no, I can't hear anybody screaming. So I go down. I go down the mountain, and now I'm thinking something's up, something's off. I call the front desk. I didn't tell anybody I was calling them. And I called because there was a few leaders back in the back that, that didn't do the hike. They were just sort of waiting, and they were being amused by my ill fortune. And so I'm sitting in the van. I call the front desk, and I'm like, hey. I'm like, what's the name of the trail that goes to the summit where you look out at the beautiful view? And she told me, and it wasn't the trail that we were on. We were on Rattlesnake. And I said, I said, but what about rattlesnakes? She goes, oh, no. She goes, that's the opposite side of the camp. I'm like, oh, no. See, I had a goal for all of us, and it did not work. My goal was not completed. You got to see this here. But Jesus was made perfect because he checked off all the requirements perfectly. He met the goal. 
In the Greek, it's the idea of you, you fulfilled the task. You met the goal. And, and here's what's so exciting here. He's perfect. And real quickly here, because we're going to move into chapter 8. Real quickly, it, not, there wasn't many priests, as verse 27 and 28 points out about the old priesthood. In this priesthood, there was one priest. One. There wasn't animals. And think about it. You could say animals offered by the thousands. Can you imagine in the priestly days, you're going up to the temple on the day of atonement? Daddy, why is all this blood coming down this valley? Well, son, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Year after year, sacrifice after sacrifice, thousands after thousands, it did not take away sin. But Christ met the goal. There wasn't many animals. He offered up the sacrifice of himself. Finally, it met the goal. You know, it wasn't many, it, it was his sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, but it was not many times. It was once and for all. It's superior in its power, it's superior in its promise, its permanence, its purity, its perfection. But then we jump into chapter eight. And what he does, like you gotta hear the heart here. It, it's he, he keeps saying this in different ways because he's dealing with an audience that if they miss the beauty of the priesthood of Christ, they will be tempted to go the wrong direction. And so now like a loving spiritual father that the author of Hebrews is, what does he do in chapter eight? He comes into verse one. Now the point in what we are saying is this. Have you ever had somebody that just couldn't get to the point? And they say something and they say something. You're like, come on, get, get to the point. Come on, get there, get there. And, 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 and they look and they say, I don't know why everybody's looking at my mother-in-law. <laughs> so get to the point. And so... What the author of Hebrews does, I'm not going to get lunch now. <laughs> the, author, <laughs> the author of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, here is the head. Here is the principal thing. You got to see this. He's saying, look, I told it to you one way. I'm going to come back one more time. In verses 8, 1 through 6, he goes another direction. And what he does in 8, 1 through 6 is he shows them five pivotal observations concerning the priesthood of Jesus. And you may be like, but why is he doing that? He just went through this whole comparison in chapter seven. Well, again, what's his heart? His heart is to say it and say it and say it and say it and say it as many different ways as they need it to understand the priesthood of Jesus is significant and special and supreme. First one that we see, the first observation of what we learn about the priesthood of Christ. Christ, our high priest, is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. I'll tell you, I can say, and just to encourage you, I mean, like, aren't we all in a process of learning? I can't tell you how many things I've learned that I really didn't know 
like I should have, or maybe I just was thinking of incorrectly since I've been in the book of Hebrews. And one of those subjects would be the right hand, seated at the right hand of God. I've come to a different appreciation and understanding of the glory of that statement. You see, what's happening is he's used it all the way through. Look at chapter one, verse three. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand. Notice that. After making purification for sins, he sat down. To sit down at the right hand was the idea of a person of high rank who puts someone at his right hand, gives them equal honor with himself and recognizes him of equal dignity. So here's the deal. You may be exposed to false teaching that says Jesus is lesser than the Father. Understand, it's impossible for one to sit at the right hand of one without being equal completely. Jesus is fully God. He's fully man. And in his humanity, as he completed the mission as the God-man, he performed the purification for our sin. He set down, Hebrews 1.13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand? That's his point. Remember, some would have been tempted to think that the angels were greater than Jesus because of their culture, because of their understanding of things religiously. And he's saying, wait a minute, how in the world can the angels sit at the right hand? They can't. He only says this to Christ because of his position and his power, Hebrews 10. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. Now, I've got more to look at, but we're running out of time. You remember in Philippians 2, you know, he speaks about he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And what did he do in his exaltation? As proof that he was highly exalted, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I love this because he was put into a place of prominence. But, but this is huge. You see, the earthly priesthood of Aaron would never have a priest sitting down. Why? Because their work was literally nonstop. You couldn't sit down. But what did Cully read for us in the call to worship today? What did Jesus declare on the cross? It ties in intentionally, I believe, with all my heart to Hebrews chapter 7 and 8. It is finished. It is accomplished. The goal has been met. It comes from the same word we just looked at when we saw made perfect. You see what is happening here? It is finished. It's a perfect tense. You may be thinking, well, that really thrills me. Here's the idea, though. It's an action in the past with continuous results in the future, meaning at that moment, 
from now on for all of eternity, the results and the glories of what follows Christ, perfect atoning sacrifice are set in stone. Why? He met the goal. He met the goal. It is finished. He, he could sit down. I love this because he, it, one man, Tony Morita, I really love him. He said, too many Christians think Jesus has already done all that he's going to do for us. We look back to the cross and the resurrection and assume this is where his work ends, but two very important aspects of the work aren't finished. For starters, Christ didn't accomplish in his earthly ministry all the Messiah was foretold to accomplish. We're still waiting for Christ to vindicate his church and judge the nations. So this aspect of his work is yet to be finished, but his sacrificial work is one and complete. I love it because Christ is in the throne room of the Father and he is actively interceding for us. And he is actively anticipating what he will still do in the future. Isn't that a glorious thought? But there's nothing in doubt about the sacrifice of Christ. Second of all, not only Christ our high priest is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, Christ our high priest serves in the true tent. Now this gets exciting. Now what in the world? He says in verse two, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. What does that mean, in the true tent? If you had never read the Old Testament, you might be thinking, what in the world could he be speaking about when he mentions a tent? Well, in the Old Testament, they would have thought of the tabernacle. The tabernacle. The tabernacle was where God had designed that he be worshiped, where God had designed that the people would offer sacrifice, where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. See, look at Exodus chapter 25. Exodus 25, 8, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. A lot of people often say, what would the tabernacle have looked like? The tabernacle was a portable tent of meeting in the wilderness. And it literally was moved as the people went. And that tent is the, this is exciting. The author of Hebrews is saying God's design for the tabernacle in the Old Testament was just a copy or a shadow of what was actually in the heavenly tabernacle, in the heavenly sanctuary. Christ is a minister in the holy place in the sanctuary of heaven. And this tent reminds us of what is to come. I took a picture of this because I left it in my office, but I want to read this to you, this quote. Kent Hughes says, to possess the benefits of a perfect sacrifice administered by a perfect 
priest serving in perfect session in the perfect substantiality of the ultimate real sanctuary built not by man, but by God was and is a grace that came for the first time through the new covenant in Christ. It is no mere shadow. It is the real thing, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord. Wow. Do you realize that if that move from our minds into our hearts, it changes everything. All of a sudden you're going, wait a minute. He is an adequate. He is a faithful. He is a perfect. He is the God, man, high priest who gives me access to the Father. You see, all of this pattern, this pattern was significant. You remember like all the furniture that would be in the tabernacle? All of the furniture, you've got so many, we don't have time to get into it, but all of the furniture was a pattern of the glory of the heavenly sanctuary in which Christ sat at the right hand of the Father, having fulfilled the mission perfectly. Christ, our high priest, though, also offers up a better sacrifice. He's already mentioned this. You see, to make sure we do not miss his main point, he reiterates on something he's already expressed. We can't understand Jesus unless we see how Jesus fulfills the sacrificial system of the priesthood of the Old Testament. This is like Christianity 101. You think about scope and sequence in school. We have scope and sequence laid out as to what a kid needs to understand by the time they're in second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade. Let us understand something. Hebrews is not a book for seminarians. Hebrews is 101 basic Christianity. And if we don't understand it, we can't go further into the things of God. This is the beauty of the reality that every Shadow, every copy, every type is all pointing to one individual in the New Testament. The Old Testament is not a book of ethical stories of incredible heroicism, you know, people who are heroes and people that really did some amazing things and people that did dumb things. No, the Old Testament is a thread of the story of redemption of the one, the ultimate one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes to redeem mankind. And it's all pointing to him. And now the, think about it, the author's talking to these Jews and he's saying, look guys, little girls, you gotta understand something. You're tempted to go back. Why would you go back to that which only serves as a shadow? Why would you go back? This is what often happens today, isn't it? You get some people in Christianity that go back to the Old Testament and they start saying, oh, we're going to do the feast here. We're going to do the feast here. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And they almost, you're like, wait a minute. Did you know that we got into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Did you know that the new covenant has come in Christ? And some of them dangerously are focused more on the shadow than they are the substance of the Lord Jesus Christ. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also 
to have something to offer. I love this. They would offer gifts and sacrifices. Some people speculate the meal offerings, all of the different types of offerings that they would give unto the Lord. The sacrifices, some think the gifts and the sacrifices are the same thing. But his point is this. It is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. And what is he going to offer? He's going to offer up himself. Hebrews 7 says, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Hebrews 9.14, much the same thing. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In offering up himself, he far supersedes the gifts and sacrifices of the priesthood of Aaron. Next, Christ, our high priest, fulfills the substance, not the shadow. I already mentioned that, but look at what he does. Verse four, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. What does he mean there? If he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Well, I think one of the ideas is this. It was never the intention of God for Christ to act as a priest on this earth in his earthly ministry before the cross. Why? Because for him to do so would have misunderstood the difference between the shadow and the substance. You see, God intended for these men that came in the line of Aaron to fulfill their goal. And what was their goal? They were to act as those who served as a shadow, as those who served as a copy of the greater priesthood. But Christ could never have served there. Another reason he couldn't have served there is because he wasn't a part of the line of Aaron. And that line of Aaron had a distinct timetable in the economy of God. But what happens? He comes at a different time. He comes at a different time. We come on down and we see this language of shadow and copy. They serve a copy in verse five and a shadow of the heavenly things. A copy, what does a copy mean? It's a representation or a type. What is a shadow? A shadow is foreshadowing something. It's prefiguring things future and more perfect. It's like Paul said in Colossians when he speaks about all the days, the religious days, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You see what he's doing here? He's saying, look, he's building it one by one by one, and he's showing this. You see, the next phrase here is fascinating. Keep reading. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. I was fascinated. I never dreamed there was this many references to this passage. In Exodus 25, 40, it mentions it. But, but look at uh, Numbers 8. And this was the workmanship of the lampstand, hammered work of gold from its base to its flowers. It was hammered work according to the pattern that the Lord had shown Moses. Now, this is fascinating. We don't have time to really get into it this morning, but I want you to think about something. When Moses went up on Mount Sinai, 
God gave him the blueprint. When he went up on the mountain, God gave him the pattern that was literally foreshadowing the pattern of the heavenly sanctuary where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Amen? It's powerful. Powerful stuff. We could go on and on and on. And then finally, I'm just going to mention it briefly. Christ, our high priest, mediates a better covenant. We're going to jump into this next time and really start here as we move into verse 7 through verse 10. So what do we see? What observations do we see that we need to land on? I want to go through the end of chapter 7. We saw what? That priesthood is superior to that of Aaron because it's superior in power, promise, permanence, purity, perfection. But then what were the observations that he wants them to see the main point? The observations are clear. He says, Christ, our high priest, is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He serves in the true tent. He offers up a better sacrifice. He fulfills the substance, not the shadow. He mediates a better covenant. So we're going to land a plane right here. Seven major takeaways quickly, quickly, quickly in Hebrews chapter seven and eight. Seven major salvation takeaways. What are we learning? If we miss this, all we've learned is a bunch of uh, knowledge-based information that will not get us anywhere, and it definitely will not bring us to access to God. First one, the priesthood of Christ destroys pluralism. What is pluralism? It's the world's view that there are many ways to God. Be sincere do your best. There was a guy on Twitter just last night. You know what he said? Jesus was Christ. Buddha was Christ. Muhammad was Christ. Christ is a word for the universe seen itself. You are Christ. We are the body of Christ. Um, no, that's not true. That's heresy. You see, the priesthood of Christ shows us there's only one way we can have access to a holy God. And every other religious figure falls into the same predicament of all of sinful humanity. They have no ability to give us access to a holy God. What do we need? We need the greater priesthood. We need a greater mediator. We need one who is fully God and fully man who can act on our behalf and give us access and so I pray that you see this. High school students, junior high students, you're gonna come to a place within your life, if not already, within the next few years, you're gonna be sitting in a college classroom, whether at Northeast, whether at Alabama, Auburn, Georgia, you name it, and a professor will say, any way that you believe is an adequate way to God. Understand, Hebrews says, may it never be. The priesthood of Jesus Christ is significant and supreme over every religious system. If we misunderstand that, we have lost Christianity. Second of all, I get excited about this because this is worth dying for. This is the book of Hebrews that says, look, there's only one way we have access to God, and it's through the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second one. Second one is the priesthood of Christ illustrates how devastating our sin truly is. You see, our sin is so severe 
that it takes a mediator. I pray you see this. It shows us that our sin is so severe, we need a mediator. We need someone outside of ourself in order for us to be made right with God. And not just someone outside of ourselves. We need the mediator that God has prescribed. We need the mediator that fits the requirement. We need the mediator that meets the goal. And if we could see this, you know, Hebrews is showing us that if you believe in a system of works-based righteousness where you'll face God one day, he'll look at you and say, you know what? You've got a good heart. You've been trying hard. I'll let you into heaven. You've completely obliterated and misunderstood the message of Hebrews. Our sinfulness requires and necessitates, but only by the grace and the mercy of God, a greater priest. Praise be to God. Thirdly, the priesthood of Christ shows the futility of sinful people trying to earn their way to God. I pray what it does. I think we're all tempted, aren't we? I know I am. I grew up in the South and I find myself so often falling back into a mindset of works-based righteousness. Anybody in here besides the preacher struggle with that? The book of Hebrews is consistently helping me. It's hammering and hammering against that notion that we could do anything to somehow affect that we could be made right with God. What is it showing us? It's showing us that you can't get access to God apart from a mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, the fourth one. The priesthood of Christ highlights the glorious work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see the question that I used to be asked by somebody, they would say, whose work are you depending on? I pray the book of Hebrews gets you closer to realizing the only work that we can depend on is not our own. It's only the work of Jesus. The next one, the priesthood of Christ displays the necessity of the humanity and deity of Christ. Do you realize that Christ could never sit at the right hand of the Father apart from the fact that he was full deity, but also he could never have offered up the sacrifice of himself had he not been full humanity. And what we see in Hebrews is a glorious display of the necessity of Jesus being the God-man. Sixthly, the priesthood of Christ, and I pray this hits you, loudly proclaims the safety, security, and access of those in Christ. Wow. Years ago, in the world, in the circles that my dad was in, he, he was known, you know, in that little corridor of the southeast. He, a lot of people knew who he was. And I, I remember there were people that I would meet, and my friends were always thought it was funny. They'd be like, They'd call it the Wayne Barber fan club, Doug and JJ. They'd be like, what do these people act like your dad's some superstar? They're like, he's just another guy. And they would see us and, and they'd be like, oh, well, you know, Wayne Barber. And I, I'd look at him. One time a guy came up to me and I was like, uh, they, they thought I couldn't get to your dad. And I said, wait a minute, you want to see him? And I, and I remember I was like, hey, dad, where you at? Where you at? Where you at? Called him up. Uh, where you at? Uh, I, I'll bring him into the office. Isn't it interesting when you have access, it changes everything. <laughs> changes everything. 
It's like, you want to meet him? You want to go to dinner with me tonight? I'm going with him. I'm going in about two hours. He'll, he'll pay for yours too, I'm sure. <laughs> Come on. You see what I'm saying? It's like, we have security. We have safety. We have access. I'll tell you, friend, if you struggle with resting in those promises, I can relate with you. I've struggled with this many, many early years of my life as a Christian. I struggled with resting in the reality that I truly could come into the presence of Jesus and I could be safe, secure, and have full access. But I pray that, that not, I pray your heart is seeing the glorious picture of the promise for those who trust in Jesus Christ. You are secure. You are safe. Those who put their faith in Jesus, those who turn from their sin and look to the Lord Jesus Christ have a joyous proclamation of praise because Christ is their mediator. Finally, this morning, the priesthood of Christ ties the superior nature of the priesthood of Christ directly to our endurance. If you're here today and you want to endure to the very end, I want to encourage you to study the priesthood of Christ. What did he tell these precious people as he started this idea of the priesthood? In Hebrews 6.18, he says, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. I pray that as we go through chapter seven and eight, it raises your hope meter. All of a sudden, this is like getting gas in a car. You know, the other day I was down to about negative nine and I put a full tank in there and man, all of a sudden that thing went all the way up. As I studied the priesthood of Christ, you know what it does for my hope odometer? It brings it all the way up. Why? Because it's through the priesthood of Jesus that we have hope, that we can live out of today. So praise be to God. Would you bow your head?